Hello, and welcome to the DMV Business Show, a weekly show where we get to meet local business and community leaders in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area. They get to impact their story and how they got there. You can expect to hear advice and learn about their journey and how they went from point A to point B. My name is Odo Sevilla, and I'm a commercial real estate advisor in the local DC, Maryland, and Northern Virginia area. I have been very fortunate to have worked with many amazing entrepreneurs and executives, from startup founders to international Fortune 500 companies. And one of the things I love about what I do is I get to form these great relationships with some interesting people. I get to know them and I learn about how it all started. And I love hearing a good business story. When I'm not working in commercial real estate, I just also happen to be the host of this show. So please enjoy and welcome to the DMV Business Show. Hello everyone, welcome to the DMV Business Show. I'm your host, Odo Sevilla. And today I have a special treat for you. Our guest is Craig Zingerline. Craig is the founder and CEO of Growth University, Growth University, and he's also involved in an advisor in multiple companies and a partner at Black Lab Venture Studio. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you for joining us. Odo, thank you so much. I'm a big fan of the pod and uh, thanks for doing what you're doing in the DMV area and supporting local entrepreneurs. So I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. I appreciate that. So before we go into your personal story, if you could just give the audience, correct, just a general overview of what is Growth U, Growth University? Yeah. So Growth University um, is a spin out from an accelerator called the Launch Accelerator. And uh, kind of my personal exploration over the last few years has really been the intersection of product management and marketing. And I had talked to dozens and dozens and dozens, actually hundreds of founders about their pain points around trying to grow and scale their businesses. Uh, and having been an operator myself for a number of high growth startups, as well as some failed entities as well, um, I started to build this playbook of growth that I thought was applicable, kind of regardless of company stage, size, industry, sector. And uh, originally it was going to be a book, uh, but I found I didn't quite have enough time to, to write a big book. And so I started building out a uh, what was what was originally a single curriculum. And it was a it was a pretty rough MVP of a uh, like a four or six module course or program that I put together to try to teach how to do growth within a startup. And that kind of evolved over time. And I actually spun out Growth University. Um, about seven or eight months ago, actually, as a way to, first of all, do this full time and uh, secondarily, primarily to really help startups understand the levers and mechanisms that they have around holistic growth. So these are um, focusing on areas around customer acquisition, customer discovery, activation, product-led growth, retention, and experimentation. Uh, we focus a little bit on kind of the fundraising side, how to build a great pitch deck kind of on the entry point, all the way through kind of working through some of the challenges that your startup might have at scale. And so I've built a team and we've packaged together all these different programs that kind of help founders along their growth journey. And, and I found that it's uh, both a lot of fun and uh, it's it's been a wild ride so far. You know, working myself day to day with a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners here in the local area, I, I love the startup world. So I, I can't wait to hear the story behind what led you to where you are today. Yeah. Um, but before that, if we can sort of rewind the clock all the way back, are sure. you originally from this area or? I'm not actually. I'm from uh, central New York state. Um, so when I say I'm from, I grew up in New York, everybody thinks New York City. I was actually like four hours from there, halfway between the uh, same distance between um, my hometown of Rome, New York and Boston as, as New York City. Um, we used to love going to New York. We'd go to Boston. There wasn't a lot to do where I grew up, um, but uh, probably most famously was known for uh, an Air Force base that was there as well as, I mean, it was a cool small town uh, to grow up in, but um, kind of the, you know, classic central New York, small city. Um, and, uh, you know, as a kid, you find yourself just bumming around on your bike and, and uh, trying to stay out of trouble. Yeah. So you said Rome, New York, right? Rome, New York. Okay. So you're same distance, four hours from New York City and, four, and also four hours from Boston? Yeah, which is crazy, right? Like people think, um, you know, people have this view of New York, but they don't often don't realize like, it's, it's actually a quite huge state and there's mountains and, and awesome cities and obviously the, the pinnacle being New York, but there's big cities, there's mountains, there's a lot of rivers, there's tons of lakes. Um, there's a lot of uh, 
you know, rural land. There's a lot of farming, a uh, lot, you know, decent amount of industry. It was really kind of a, um, you know, my town was a an old industrial town that had kind of, uh, you know, in some ways lost its way and then was trying to find its way back kind of post uh, you know, a lot of the, the challenges that the Rust Belt had. Um, interestingly enough, we were uh, one of the few parts of the country that gets a phenomenon called lake effect snow. And so we would get naturally just tons of snow as it is being kind of smack in the middle of New York State, fairly close to the Adirondack Mountains. But we had uh, what was called lake effect snow, which would come in. And when the um, clouds and air would go over the Great Lakes, I guess they would pick up moisture and then it would just dump snow. On, on our area. So if you look at a map of, of New York State, there's something called the Tug Hill Plateau. It's kind of Rome, Utica, out to Syracuse, um, not quite as far west as Rochester, not as far east as Albany, and then kind of north of there, where we are one of the snowiest parts of the country. So that was kind of cool. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So besides plowing snow growing up, what were you into? <laughs> well, that's interesting, actually. So my, my, uh, my dad had a... Um, uh, uh, you know, he had, a, he had a normal job, but then he had a side business as a snowplower. Oh. And so at like five, five thirty in the morning in the winter, I would just kind of ride with him. Um, and, uh, uh, I was riding with him one time actually, and the brakes failed in this really old Jeep that we were using. And we actually busted a hole in the um, side of our garage. Uh, you know, we pushed the snowplow, right. You know, pushed the snowbank right up to the wall and then just busted through the wall. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a lot of snow. It was a lot of skiing, um, ice skating. We would flood our yard and, and, and put an ice skating rink in, um, uh, really some, some pretty awesome, like unique things to do as a, as a kid. Um, you know, I was, I was pretty lucky actually to grow up in an area that was, um, you know, kind of, a, I guess, uniquely fun in, in a lot of different ways. You, you mentioned your dad's side business there. Did you start working at a young age, Craig, or? I had always had uh, these kind of random jobs, mostly over the summer, um, starting in, I guess, in early high school. Uh, I've been a longtime runner. My dad uh, is, was and still is a runner. And um, I had gotten involved with the city of Rome, like teaching track programs over the summer. So I'd, I'd say probably in 10th grade, I started doing that. So I did that pretty much every summer all the way through high school. I would teach kind of kids uh, this track program over the summers. I was a ski instructor. Um, and then in college, I kind of started my first like, quote unquote, real business um, building websites for, for people. Uh, I, I studied information management in college. And so I learned how to do some of the technical stuff. And, you know, back then, this was in like the late 90s. If you could build a web page, you could make pretty good money. So I was like, I'm going to do that for a while. Um, so yeah, I guess I've, I've always been kind of entrepreneurial from that standpoint. Yeah, actually, one of our previous guests, uh, Brad, founder of Tyote from DC, started just like that in, in college, building websites. And yep. yeah, yes. where'd you end up going to college? I went to Syracuse University. Okay. okay. Yep. So I went there. Um, I uh, ran cross country and indoor and outdoor track as well. So I'm a distance runner. And so I did that, um, which is, I mean, just growing up in Rome and then going to Syracuse, you're kind of like a, I don't know, I, I, it was challenging, um, you know, putting a lot of miles in on the roads, trying to run and train for races and stuff during the winter, especially. But um, yeah, I ended up there. And then uh, shortly after college had, I had kind of continued that business that I had started in college and was living at home and my um uh, my best friend was a graphic designer, so he and I um, just started digging into building web presences for companies mostly around Rome. And then at some point, we uh, we just kind of wanted to do something different and try to do something a little bigger. And, and he ended up getting a job in Boston, and I kind of like tagged along. I was interviewing with places, and, and then we ended up um, kind of share, sharing a place in Boston for a while, uh, right outside of Boston, actually. And then kind of went into more entrepreneurial journeys from there. I'm curious, starting off on your own and when you sort of partnered with your friend there, how, how did you get those first customers designing and building their websites? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was in, I guess, college, it must have been over the summer, I had an uncle uh, who had a, a jewelry shop in Rome and they had heard that I was doing web development stuff. So they hired me for a project. And then 
it was mostly just word of mouth at that time. You know, not a lot of people were building at that point. It was really technical to build websites and stuff back then. You had to hand code everything. There were no frameworks or no, there were no tools. Like you just kind of had to know how to, how to build stuff. And so living in Rome after college, word started spreading that my friend and I had this little company and we could build websites and we, uh, we actually built the the city of Rome's website, which I totally forgot about. I, that, I don't think that was up for that long, but we had just random offers and opportunities. Like somebody was going to give us free office space in exchange for a website. And we didn't take them up on that because we ended up making that move to, to Boston. But it, it, you know, in a small local market, uh, in an emerging field, it's kind of greenfield. So people heard that we were building websites and they would just kind of reach out to us around what year was this do you remember this was like 99 okay um, okay yeah like 1999 1998 1999 so like right way in the early days yeah the growth was there it was i mean it was like a you know you look at a lot of those uh those legacy what we would call now maybe legacy businesses but those businesses that came online during the time when people were also getting online a lot of them did well. I mean, think about like Priceline, AOL, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of the tech companies that that are, I mean, Microsoft was emerging still at that point. I mean, they were established, but they, it was like this tidal wave of opportunity and the companies that could kind of hook into that um, and kind of ride that wave, a lot, a lot of them did really well. I mean, of course there were a bunch of crashes after that, um, you know, where the, the market kind of got oversaturated, but it was a really interesting time. Sure. Craig, once you land in Boston, then did you sort of go into different startups or tech or what happens then once you move there? Yeah. So when I moved to Boston, I had taken a job at a little company where I think there were six people and it was, uh, it was a web development shop. And so I was again doing basically like programming, but for slightly bigger projects at that point. And I, I was doing well there. I mean, that was it was a good small company. We were getting a lot of projects and clients. I remember um, the the reason why I left that company was because I wanted to try to get more vacation time, and they were like real sticklers with vacation. Like you had two weeks and that's it. And I was like, I don't know, I was like twenty one or something at the time. I, I was like, look, I I just need more time, and the boss just wouldn't budge. He's like, I will pay you more money, but I can't give you more. Uh, more vacation. I was like, well, I, that's just not going to work. And so I started, um, I started shopping around. And then, so I went from the web development company to a company called eDialog, um, which ended up getting late, much, much later got bought by uh, GSI Commerce and then e- eBay bought them. So it was like the series of weird exits, but I was the most junior software engineer on a team of probably, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 software engineers. And that was like being thrown to the wolves. So that was in probably 2001, 2002, where I just, that was a real startup. I mean, a venture backed startup in the email marketing space. And that's when I kind of, I started to realize uh, this, the software engineering side of me probably is not gonna, that's probably not where I'm gonna go with my career. Cause I'm, I'm not amazing at it and I'm not progressing like my peers are, but I really loved the build side and I loved the strategy side of what we were doing. And I loved the, everything from the UX. I loved doing wireframes. I loved talking about the full process and the full life cycle. And that effectively is what, I mean, there was one more stint uh, where I was a co-founder of a, of a company that ended up failing, happy to get into the details of that. But that was kind of the, the push or the transition from when I went from uh, more of a technical focus to much more of a product mindset which then much later led to much this marketing mindset that I've, I've kind of taken on now. You just mentioned now, as far as co-founding a company that didn't end up so well, mm. I'm curious, what was that? So this was, um, this was probably 2003, 2004. And, uh, that company that I was just mentioning eDialogue, we had gone through a series of layoffs and it was myself, my boss and like my boss's boss, like the head of engineering at the, 
the company all got laid off at the same time. So we'd made it through all these rounds. They kept me around, I think, because I was probably like the, the lowest paid person there, right? Like, so yeah, I lasted a bunch of rounds. And then finally, we all get laid off at the same time. Well, the three of us plus one more person decided to try to build a content management system because uh, this was before open source. And so we basically went heads down for many, many months building some pretty incredible software uh, using server-side JavaScript. You could click into a web interface, you could right-click into it, click edit, and you could start typing your edits in a very streamlined, seamless way. So very similar to some, some to how some of the modern um, like WYSIWYG editors work. So we built this really awesome tech that made the lives of the content editor a lot easier. But we were super heads down on this. And what we didn't really pay attention to was the open source movement was about to eat our world. And so we were going to market with this like $10,000 enterprise platform where the UX was great and it was fun to use, but we could not compete with free. And, uh, you know, when I teach IT, I, I do a module on this in, in one of my growth programs in my master in growth program. And I don't dwell on it, but it was basically like, you know, we have our heads kind of buried. We're just coding and, and we think we're building this awesome thing. And then boom, open source comes out and just completely crushes us. And now we're out looking for consulting gigs. You know, we had to pivot that company into uh, just hustling for dollars basically to, to eat. Right. Sure. And so uh, that was, that was tricky. And along that, uh, you know, around that same time I had actually, so I had, I'm a drummer. I had been playing in a band in Boston that was not really taken off. I mean, we were playing some gigs here and there, but I had um, realized that the, you know, the financial side of me needed to like step up the game a little bit because the startup wasn't really doing amazingly well. So I ended up building a cover band in Boston uh, that got quite popular actually. And so I spent like a year kind of building this amazing um, team of musicians and that ended up with, you know, we ended up with two to four shows a week from that. And that was kind of supplementing the, you know, the bills while, while my startup kind of wasn't doing so well. And then from there, uh, I ended up um, going back in and starting my own company again. In, in Boston, right? Yeah. So I had started, this was in 2006. I had started at that point, I guess, what was the third iteration of a service company of an agency building websites. But but that was my own thing that I had co-founded with a different partner. That company is actually still around. And um, uh, they kind of kept it small. Uh, my partner at the time is still running it now. But um, that was a remote-based model. So back in 2006, we're talking about, we're not going to get an office, remote is the way to go and all this stuff like way before yeah. this kind of modern iteration of it. Um, and so we were in, in some ways kind of ahead of the curve there. Uh, and I did that from 06 to 09 and then moved to DC for the first time uh, and actually um, took a job at a company called New Signature, uh, which ended up doing um, quite well. And uh, I was, um, I'm good friends with the founder there, the original founder there. And uh, that was just like a totally wild ride. So at 09, you decided to leave the startup that the one you founded and then just moved to DC for this opportunity, right? Yeah, like, you know, for those three years that I was running my own agency, we kind of hit the ceiling of of the size of projects we could do. And and I just wanted to do something a little bit bigger. Um, I had a kid on the way, you know, it was, it just was time to make a change and to do something a little bit more, I guess, formal, mm -hmm. um, something that was a little less risky at the time. And uh, I mean, everything is risky, right? So uh, entrepreneurship is risky. Working for somebody is risky. You can get fired at any point, right? But it just felt like the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, kind of hindsight, it, it definitely was. And I spent the next three years at that company before, um, really before going kind of all in on, on the startup ecosystem. I mean, I had been consulting with and building product for startups like the whole time. Okay. But I wasn't really an operator of a startup. I'd been inside as a software engineer or I'm, or I'm building for somebody else, but I was never really in the driver's seat or at the operational level. And starting in 2012, 2013, 2014, that's kind of when that side of my career um, really started to take off. 
Sure. So even while you were had, even while you had this corporate job for the, you said a three year period, you were still yeah. on the side consulting with other companies, right? I was pretty much, yeah, I would say that it's probably safe to say that I've had a side hustle probably my entire career. Um, it's just, it's just how it's worked out. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think, yeah, I mean, even during, I mean, obviously it, the the years from 09 to 2012 uh, when I was at New Signature were 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 quite intense in terms of just the level of effort that I I had to spend on the company, but I always had other interests that I was interested in mm -hmm. and other things that I wanted to pursue, mostly to see like what are what are some new things I can learn. So is there a new market I can get into and also make a little bit of money on the side or kind of like scratch some kind of itch I've got in terms of curiosity on a new model or a new market or whatever. So yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that I was just talking about this um, with somebody else uh, last week. There was such a stigma uh, about having a side hustle. You had to really keep it secret, mm -hmm. right? So if you were working on something on the side, you really had to be kind of secretive and not transparent about it, which really sucked. And now it's like, you know, you want to share what you're working on. And it's, uh, I mean, I encourage my whole team at Growth U to go and do other things. I want them to do other things because I think it's through doing other things that you get out of just that single mindset of like just focusing on your company and you're going to go and learn other things by being out there. And so uh, it's just interesting to see how that's evolved over time. I, I love that, Craig. And I 100% agree with you. And you know, I'm happy to see now that let's call it corporate. If you have that corporate job, your W-2, majority of them, not all, have become more flexible with that, having their team do things on the side or whatever it is, whatever their passion or interest may lay. But there's a lot of them still out there, especially if you're out there in the public and they're saying, hey, what are you doing? Is it eating on my time? Are you giving me my 40 plus hours each week or right. whatever it may be? And that that's a hard, yeah, it's a hard line to balance there if people are in that situation. It is. The way I look at this is like you don't own somebody's time. I mean, you might think you do as an employer, but if you have that mindset, it's going to be incredibly hard for you to retain, to recruit and retain top employees unless you pay unbelievably well. Like a company like Google, I think, you know, Google's making people go back to the office, even though most of their workforce doesn't want to be. And Google is also now saying that uh, if you don't live in the Bay Area, we're going to pay you less. That's just a form of control that I, I think that they can hold on to for a little while longer because they pay really well and they've got restricted stock options. But I just see that model dying. And I think that people are naturally curious and and people in general are a lot more entrepreneurial than than one likes to admit a lot of times especially if one's running a big company and so i don't view you know when i look at like my team we're very much performance based and it's hard to it's sometimes hard to quantify performance and it's hard to sometimes let go of those areas where you think that as an employer you should have control like around a nine to five or whatever we just throw it all overboard and so i mean this is an experiment but i think there's a lot of other companies experimenting with this kind of performance-based mindset it's like we'll generally know if a team member is performing or not we'll try to support that team member if they're not performing and and if you know if we can't figure out how to make it work, then we'll, then we'll look beyond that, that teammate. And it's in no way cutthroat. It's just like, we have tried to provide the most autonomous and flexible environment possible to support whatever lifestyle and whatever decisions that that adult human wants to make. Right. So we don't own the time. Uh, now we expect certain things in, in exchange for, for pay, like performance on the job, but we've gone so far as having almost no meetings. Um, we have, I think we've got two recurring meetings on the calendar. Um, and now we're a very small team, but we, we can still get away with it. And I think we will because it's part of our culture. We don't have set hours. And the, really the only requirement is that like, we just ask that our team, if there's a requirement for, uh, if there's a dependency on you, try to make yourself available 
during some period of time where where the other parties need that support, whether it's a client or myself or somebody else, right? And so that's the mindset that we take and your day is free. So work when you want, come in and out. You don't have to say, I'm gonna be back in an hour. We don't care. Yeah. You know, I, if you wanna work on something else for a little while, uh, that's your passion project, great. We, we support that. Yeah. Uh, just kind of get your work done and, and, and report back on that. So it's just total different mindset of like command and control. It's almost the opposite. Um, and it's, you know, I, I think that's where a lot of this is going to go as you want to look at acquiring and retaining the best possible people in the field, because the best people in the field generally will get bored relatively quickly. They're intellectually curious and they want to do different things. And you want them to bring that energy to work every day. So we try to support that. I agree. And I love that. And, and it's even for me personally, I'm in commercial real estate and it's a very old school, stodgy field. And it's hard to break that. People are very old school and they're set on their ways. And but the times the time is changing little by little, at least in my sector. Yeah. 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 And look, I think it's um, it's this is this is like a, a challenge that, you know, some industries just, you know, won't be able to dive into. I mean, if you, if you're in other sectors, I mean, if, if you're a nurse or a doctor or sure. you work in an auto facility or you're a teacher, you can't have this as an option because it doesn't work. Like there, ha there are certain industries where you have to be a lot more rigid. Um, the tech industry just doesn't happen to be one of those, but we still have this kind of command and control uh, legacy um, from, I don't know, post-industrial revolution that's, that's kicked in. And, and uh, you know, there's nothing worse than uh, being done with your work and, and being at the office and having to have your butt in the seat because you're worried that your boss is going to think something if, if you get up and leave uh, before a certain time. That is just, a, it's just not a good feeling. And unfortunately, I'd say like the majority of people in an office um, you know, uh, probably feel that way at times. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, out of personal experience, Craig, you, just me personally, I, I feel when you have these side things that you're pursuing and it may or may not be related for what you do day to day, but there's this new energy. Um, for example, me starting this show about a year or two years ago, there's this new energy that now I have for what I do day to day. And, and maybe if that person, and I've spoken to others who says, hey, I don't think I'm in the right field here after they're doing these side things. I'm like, well, that's good. You came to that realization much faster. Um, so you can quickly see where the path may lead you or you may change that. You may have to change course. Yes. I think it does. I mean, I think when you open it up like that and people work on these passion projects, it, they part of that is they may realize that this isn't for them. Mm -hmm. That could happen to you know me and, and one of my employees, right? Where maybe their, their side hustle becomes something that they, they truly become uh, really infatuated with and, and want to go do. And we would support that any way we can. Uh, you know, I think was a Reed Hoffman talks about uh, tours of duty at startups, you know, the one to three year stint. And it's like, if you can get one to three years of great work from somebody and you build that relationship uh, and, and they go pursue another interest, you should support that. Yes. It's going to hurt. <laughs> it sucks when somebody leaves. Uh, but, you should support that because you never know when you're going to maybe work with that person again. You know, I've found that throughout my career, I've gone in and out of working with some of the same people and you always have a short list of people that you would say, I would, I would, you know, a hundred percent of the time work with them again in the future. And, uh, and that's kind of magical when that happens. So if you treat those relationships respectfully and you kind of respect their interests, they respect yours, um, you just build a, a much stronger bond uh, that kind of transcends just working a bunch of hours together. Yeah, it's true. It's just about being un, not selfish, being unselfish and just putting yourself in another person's shoes and wanting the best for them. Absolutely. And I think it's trusting that people inherently have the best interest of your business in mind. So mm -hmm. like the flip side of all this flexibility and autonomy is like, I do trust, we trust that everybody has the best interests of, of the business in mind because we provide so much flexibility and, and autonomy uh, and, and in a lot of ways lack of structure, which again is not for everybody. 
uh, it's a very challenging dynamic for for some people to come into. And, and so and from that perspective, it might not be a great fit. But again, it just kind of comes back to like that respect and um, and and hopefully building something that is uh, reciprocal and again, just um, keeps keeps their interests and and uh, and and thinking aligned with like where the business wants to go. Yeah, hopefully people change their mind. I, I, I'd actually I had a conversation yesterday with an attorney friend of mine. He has his own law firm here in D.C. and he's telling me some of his paralegals are working remotely. Um, they were living here pre-COVID, and one of them decided to move, I believe, to the South, South Carolina. Another one is somewhere else. And he's like, I'm just so used to He's like, I just want to see them in the seat, man. And I'm like, really? Are, 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 are they producing? Are they working? They're like, yes. I'm like, that's all that should matter. Yeah. And it, but it, it's, it's a law firm. It's, it's that old mentality. And, and, this, and this is a guy who's probably a couple years younger than me. And I'm yep. like, come on. You, he's like, we have the technology. And I'm like, the person can be anywhere in the world as long as they're doing the work that's needed. But he's yeah. like, I want them in the seat. And I, yeah, I, I think that's yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a tricky one because you have to dig into why. Why do you want them in the seat? And and really dig into understanding what that person's user psychology is or psychology is when they're thinking about the value created by having that person in the seat, you know, for that person who now gets to work remotely, imagine presumably their life is better because there's less, you know, especially with kids. I mean, I've got a couple kids and it's just like, you know, right when my kids were little, I was also spending a lot of time in the office and you're, you're just hustling to try to get in and you're fighting traffic just to get in. And then you get your seat and it's like, why do we need to do this? And the, on the flip side, the structure and control in a well-organized company, you can see that the value there is that there's almost a guaranteed amount of output. But I think you can replicate that and, and get even more by breaking through that. But the, the challenge is that most of us were, were brought up with this kind of mindset of like structure and there's certain times and there's a, there's, there's office hours or there's, it's a nine to five or it's an eight to five, whatever you get a lunch break. Um, but when you flip that on its head, I mean, there's only, so as of last week, um, I was the only person at my company actually working from the U S my entire team happened to all be in Ireland. Um, I have, my co-founder is Irish, so she lives in Ireland. Uh, one of my, my growth lead, uh, was visiting, uh, Ireland and my head of ops was also visiting family in Ireland. And so like, I'm the only one here now, one is back here and another is coming back next week. And we just hired somebody else who's, who's also based in Ireland. And it's like, so what does that mean? Well, the the challenge is that we're it's harder for us to all be on at exactly the same time and there's some synchronicity that you miss but what actually happens is that i tend to do a bunch of work at night so i'm queuing stuff up i'm getting stuff done it's quiet i'm cranking and then by the time i wake up a whole bunch of stuff has been done you know it's like my you know one of my teammates will just get a bunch of stuff done and then we'll take a bunch of time off during the day and then when i get online she'll be back online and then stays kind of into her evening. So she's adjusted her day to kind of match mine and, and sure. vice versa a little bit. And the, the level of uh, effectiveness is, is amazing because now we have almost this 24 seven. So we've lost that like nine to five, right? And the predictability of that, but we've gained this like almost 24 seven around the clock support where somebody at the company is almost always pushing on moving the company forward. And that's pretty awesome. Yeah. That I is pretty that. awesome. I love that. Craig, so you stay in this corporate job for three years and then you said after that, you've, you've, you also found another company. Yeah. So in 2012, I, uh, I had left um, my job to primarily to spend more time at home. Uh, I had two babies at home at the time and uh, it was just 
total chaos and super fun and just really challenging and, and everything kind of work and life was, was just all mixing together. And, and I thought it was the right time to try to go back out on my own. And I had all this experience building companies and, and scaling service agencies and stuff. And so that's what I thought I was going to do. So in 2012, I left that job and, and I went out on my own and I tried to start another uh, agency. And for whatever reason, I couldn't get it off the ground. Um, I had a couple clients here and there. I did a couple stints as like interim CTO and had a product for a couple different startups. One of them didn't pay me, uh, like they had run out of money. And the other one um, was uh, just wasn't really working amazingly well. And uh, and so I, I basically had failed at kind of getting this thing off the ground, which was which was really challenging. And so I left this like really great job, and now I'm kind of failing at at the thing that I'm trying to do, which was spinning up my new agency. And that was really hard. Uh, but from that, basically, um, I, again, my interests were around trying to do something bigger, trying to do something new. And I had ended up, um, my wife and I were, were interested in um, looking at California. Um, she's originally from Southern California. We were interested in the Bay Area. I knew there was just an amazing startup scene out there. And we just felt like maybe that's that's a great place for us to go. And uh, I ended up cold emailing the CEO of a company uh, called Red Tricycle and actually um, kind of opportunistically was hired there uh, where I spent the next um, little over a year and a half kind of building out the product and growth side of, of that startup and just really fully got immersed in kind of the Bay Area startup scene, which was absolutely incredible. Uh, and then left that actually to start my own um, my own startup, like a tech startup. Um, that didn't quite go the way I wanted it to. Uh, and from there, um, did a bunch of consulting. And then in 2017, came back this way uh, to take a job as head of growth at Upside Travel, uh, which was super interesting. And then I did a stint as chief product officer at Sandbox. And then as I was building these programs out, it became clear like, you know, I could monetize this. It's where my passion is. And, uh, and it really was kind of the culmination of everything that I'd worked on in my career. And that's when I spun up uh, Growth You. I love that. Craig, all, all these experiences, founding companies starting for whatever reason or another, they don't work out. And now with Growth University and doing so well, what are maybe some key elements you think that may have been lacking back then that now you're doing things differently? I think I had always had the mindset of trying to launch early and get something out there quickly. But I mean, as evidenced by the content management company that totally failed, we had our heads in the sand and we were building, building, building. I can't stress enough, like every time I've been through or seen failure, just about every time, I mean, there's many reasons why startups fail. And running out of money is one of them, right? A team member leaving is another, but almost all of those issues that I've seen start with a lack of ability to find an actual market that's interested in the thing that you're selling, whether it's a service or a product. And it, it's, it's really, really interesting. So, I mean, just some, some quick stats. I mean, really like one in 12 startups will make it past year five. They'll make it to year 10, one in 12. And roughly 50% of tech startups will die in the first year. And then 70% will die within years two and five. So the attrition rate is, is incredibly high. Now, we can talk about where I think the industry is going with no code movement and everything else. So I think there's there's some really interesting things happening. Um, it's kind of a new wave of of innovation happening on that side of things. But the the main findings that I had were simply not getting in front of customers, not doing enough customer discovery, not having enough conversations to understand the problem solution fit side. So like the classic example is technical founders get together, put their heads down, build, 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 build launch and it's just it's too little too late like something in the market shifted while they were building a competitor came in or they realized that the demand generation side of building a startup is actually really really hard and so it took me a long time to figure out that rather than starting with the 
product or the engineering side of of building, it's really all about finding a market and a set of users that cares about what you're doing and is willing to pay for what you're doing. And so I know that's like very much oversimplified, but the founders and the startups who kind of relentlessly focus on that very early customer discovery, talking to customers, iterating their product messaging and their product marketing and their solution based on feedback from real human conversations that they're having, not from like surveys and, you know, it's from talking to customers. Those companies do well. And and I found that most founders just aren't doing that work, right? They're building stuff and then they're putting it out there and they're, the marketing side is such an afterthought. And there's often a conflict between marketing and growth teams and product teams and engineering teams. And they don't always get along and it's all this drama, uh, which I've seen firsthand. At the end of the day, it's all about, unless you've raised a ton of capital, it's all about finding buyers for the thing that you're putting out there. And so if you can focus on that and you can build the frameworks and methodologies and that kind of muscle memory of doing that customer discovery, which is really hard. It's embarrassing sometimes to do. It feels uncomfortable, but you got to do that in order to build something that has that scalability on the other side. And, uh, and most of the failures in, in things that I kind of preach early on in a lot of my growth programs are around that, right? How do you go about finding those potential early customers? What channels do they live in? How do you tell your story? What do you do when you get somebody on the phone? How do you think about pricing? Um, how should that influence what you're building? How much should you build versus how much should you release right now? Right? Like, so it's kind of all in that uh, arena where I would, where I would say my focus area has been over the last couple of years. Did you already have some of that customer base prior to starting growth university? Or how, how yeah. did Growth U come about? So Growth U came about. So when I was, um, I'll give you my origin story. I was running Growth at Upside Travel, and we were highly capitalized. We had a ton of uh, venture backing, and uh, my job was really to find customers and to try to reduce our customer acquisition cost. And I had, um, I had a really long, kind of bad commute from from where I live, and I had started. Um, so I, we got a, we got a second car and I, I ended up, cause I was taking the bus in for a while. And after spending just like hours and hours and hours on the bus, it was like, I, I have to like, I have to reduce my commute. And so we got another car and I'm now I'm fighting traffic on the way in, but it was saving me like 45 minutes each way. Long story short, embarrassingly, I started, rec I started recording myself in the car, asking myself questions about startup growth and then answering the questions. And so I would, I would come up with a theme for the drive and I'd be like, I'm going to, I'm going to ask myself about how do you find early customers? And then I would go and answer it. And, um, and that became the basis or the, the starting point of like this book and this program that I started working on. Fast forward a while, I had, I had done a ton of uh, mentor calls with startup founders through a platform called Growth Mentor, hundreds of calls. I've done about 170 calls through that platform. I had talked to as many founders as I could kind of, uh, you know, get on the phone or email with or talk to or get intros to. Um, and, and I was capturing these challenges or these pain points that these startups were having. And I was also kind of documenting my own journey and, and reflecting on like areas that I did well and areas that I failed kind of in my career. And uh, I had been a mentor of the launch accelerator. So one of my partners in this business is a guy named Jason Calacanis, and he's a big time investor. He runs the launch accelerator. And I had taken two companies through the launch accelerator, um, Red Tricycle and Votion, actually in the first and third cohorts, they're in like cohort 23 now. And after I took those companies through, I just got more and more involved with the accelerator and I became a mentor of the accelerator, which meant that I would just kind of regularly talk to some of the companies. And then I kind of just kept the dialogue open with Jason about two years ago now. I said, hey, like I'm starting to think about building this program to help founders with growth. He's like, yeah, keep me posted on, on where you go with that. Last summer, actually, a little over a year ago, um, we had a couple conversations and, and he was like, hey, if you want to throw something together for my accelerator companies, 
um, they were running a cohort of the accelerator last summer. So in, in the summer, uh, July and August of uh, 2020. And he said, if you can build something and deliver it, I'll put all my companies through it. And so we ran a private beta with like, I don't know, 10 or 12 companies. And, and I was just frantic last summer. I mean, I was like building content. I mean, I had a lot of the content, but it was in bits and pieces. I was building right up, right up until the live cohort sessions when I, when I would run the module and I'd deliver the content. I mean, some of it was quite raw, um, but, but, but it was a pretty strong program and the feedback was really, really strong. So before I had even had a company, I had all of this data now from about a dozen companies with positive and negative feedback, ways to make it better. I had done an NPS survey. The NPS was, I think it was in the 50s. So I was like, okay, this is not terrible. I thought it was going to be in the 30s. Like people kind of like it, but they're like, nah, most people will give me a six or a seven. The, the NPS was actually pretty strong. And so I just had some momentum coming out of that and confidence now um, because I had a huge amount of imposter syndrome with this. I'm like, why, why should it be me? Like, you know, I have never worked for a big public company. Do I really know this stuff? And it turns out like I was really good at building the framework and the curriculum and the feedback from the startups was like, this is saving me a lot of time. And so when I started hearing that, I was like, okay, I'm going to dig into this. So that propelled um, me to basically go to get a lot more organized. So I ran the first public cohort at late September last year. So like 11 months ago, Correct. I ran now, the first public uh, cohort. So sorry to interrupt. You're not, this is not being monetized at this time, right? At that point, it had not. Okay. All right. So the okay. first monetization, uh, Jason and I came up with a deal and we said, uh, we'll sell seats into this program. And okay. we're both going to kind of promote it. So you're just I testing like, it out right now. We're okay. just testing it out. And the demand was incredibly high. And so uh, the demand just from the first, the first cohort, I mean, we sold that cohort out. I also had um, given away just a ton of like free seats and stuff for, for a lot of underserved founders and like just founders who reached out and were like, hey, I can't afford to do this right now, but I really am interested in the content. It was just like, just come on in, like, we're going to just do this. You know, I was still, I was still working at Sandbox at the time. So I still had my day job. I wasn't concerned about, you know, personal runway and all that stuff. So that was the first monetization exercise and, and it went well. And so from there, we ran a second cohort in like November and, and then, um, Jason and I decided to spin it out as a company. So like we had private beta and then two public betas that we did monetize. And then finally it became a company. So I came in with a lot of momentum, but, but I actually kind of pulled the rug from underneath um, all of our feet by changing our business model from a transactional kind of, you pay for a seat into a live cohort into a membership subscription model. Like when you do that, it's like you slam on the brakes because what we've found, and this is just a little pricing strategy tidbit for anybody listening, like it's a lot easier to get somebody to pay for a single use, a one-off thing, a seat to a program, than it is a membership. There's a psychological impact of selling uh, something that's uh, either a retainer or recurring, a recurring bill that they're going to get on their credit card. And so we kind of deliberately and strategically slowed that process down as we built this company out with the theory that if we can find the right members and the right startups to come in, our retention should be pretty good. And in fact, our retention is fantastic. And so we kind of slowed down a little bit to build it up and build the team. And now we're, now we're in that trajectory where, where we're scaling up. That's great. With the membership business plan now, Craig, it's more, it changes. Now you're sort of building a community, right? And right. now you have to worry about, not worry, but providing content continuously, not just a yep. one-time thing and you're done. Absolutely. And that was a big, that was a big decision point for, for me. If you had interviewed me a year ago and asked me what I was going to do with this thing, I would say, you know, for the next couple of years, I'm probably going to have one program. And it turns out the feedback was so strong from the first program. So our, when we, and when we ran an NPS survey, uh, late last fall, our NPS was in the eighties. And so we're like, okay, there'd be a lot of people who'd be upset if this type of thing wasn't around. And that got me. And, and at the same time, we also had people asking for additional programs. So they get through the Master and Growth program. What was originally called Growth University is now called Master and Growth. It's just one of our many programs. We've got eight programs now. 
but people wanted more. And so that's when I really took the plunge and I brought on Jen, who's now my co-founder. She's a fantastic content contributor. We've actually got a new hire starting on Monday that's going to help us just build out our curriculum. You know, she's going to be our head of development and, and membership and kind of community. And so, yeah, our, our whole operating thesis now, our hypothesis is that if we consistently provide great longer form content, that'll save founders a bunch of time from having to go and piece together free material and all these other programs that you could take. It's like, we're kind of your one-stop shop for learning about startup growth. And we go deep into channels and we've got great instructors and we're getting third-party instructors in. You know, We've got a model for that as well that we think this will be the place where you come to grow. And, and so far that's proven itself to be uh, quite true. Will there ever be a point, Craig, where these founders come in and they've sort of hit a ceiling or is there a, can, they can just continue to evolve in the program? Yeah, our plan is um, there's, there's what I call foundational level programs, which are kind of stage agnostic. And so what's interesting is if you look at a program like Mastering Growth, we have series A companies in there and companies that are at you know 20 plus million in revenue a year. And we have companies in there that have no revenue. And it's, it's meant to, to be a foundational course that you can take, that you can learn how to do growth. So starting with building a financial and a growth model, how do you pitch that to an investor? How do you talk about that with your team? What do you report on every week from a metric standpoint and all the other things, acquisition, activation, product-led growth, experimentation, retention, and all that great stuff. So there's those types of programs. And then there's programs like, um, uh, using customer discovery to find new customers, which is, it doesn't matter what stage you're in. Like you could, if you're at 5 million in revenue, you can use that type of program and it'll give you some new ways to think about how to go after new markets or new customers. And then we got very channel specific programs. So we've got deep dives on, um, performance marketing with, you know, paid ads and Facebook, organic Instagram. Uh, we've got, a program on Google paid advertising. We're building an SEO program. So we're going to continue to build, you know, to your point on the ceiling programs for companies that are later and later and later stage. We're also going to go early and earlier, earlier stage so that we basically have that whole linear journey with these super tactical deep dives at every point on the journey. So theoretically, there is a point where you'll you'll run out of content, but we really haven't hit that yet. Um, you know what we're finding is that folks are taking mastering growth, and they may actually audit it a second time because they want to learn even more. And then we're you know one of the next programs we're launching this fall is an activation and product led growth program. So this is brand new stuff for a lot of the same founders that took that program. This is highly relevant. And then we've got advanced growth topics and we've got advanced activation strategies. So a lot of this stuff isn't quite built yet, but these are all on our roadmap. And, and that's really going to be our focus is how do we support these entrepreneurs long-term? Um, and so again, we take a very stage agnostic view of it. Now, that being said, there are learning pathways that are relevant by stage. So what we'll recommend in terms of courses or programs is going to be different if you're super early stage than if you're a series A company, right? But there's content there for everybody. You just mentioned uh, digital marketing there. So most of your the customers that are coming in at Growth, you are students. Are they coming? Are you doing digital marketing, or is it coming through some accelerator programs that you're involved with, or how does that look yeah, like? That's a great question. Uh, there's really four ways that we grow. Um, we've got pretty good organic reach. Uh, we've got people that are kind of just naturally promoting our program. There's no monetization really. I mean, we, we're building an affiliate program now, so so they'll be able to monetize that. We do a lot of paid acquisition right now. So we're experimenting in Google, uh, Facebook. We've got a really strong uh, lead capture, lead gen and conversion model that we've, uh, that we've learned. I actually just did a webinar yesterday on this and, and kind of expose a lot of what we're actually doing behind the scenes uh, there. Um, we do some cold outreach. And we've got a partnership strategy. And so if you think about like Jason Calacanis and the launch ecosystem, they, they've got a vested interest in, in helping us and we've got a vested interest in helping them. We're partners. So they'll help promote the programs. That doesn't cost us any money. Um, and it, 
it's a it's a stream of of leads for us. So we're fairly diversified already in terms of those focus areas. Where do we scale? Uh, is still up for debate. We don't yet know uh, which of those kind of four main buckets is going to work the best. Uh, I would say it's about 50-50 right now in terms of partnership strategy and paid acquisition. Uh, we've gotten some of that SEO and, and organic without really trying. We're going to invest heavily there. Uh, so, you know, Last half of this year, we're going to be doing some projects on, on increasing that, and we're going to be rolling out this affiliate kind of influencer program as well. So uh, as marketers... You know, a lot of the guidance you may hear would be just focus on one channel and just exploit that channel over and over. We're all marketers, so each of us kind of owns a different area of that, and we can we can kind of have that autonomy, but lean on the team so we can actually diversify our efforts uh, pretty well, and and that's really helping us with that compounding growth. Sure, and, and all this you're doing internally with your team, right? As far as some of these digital ep- digital right. efforts, are, okay, okay, that's yeah, great. we're all marketers. We all are hands on doing the work um you know and we stay fresh so we have a micro growth agency within about 10 hours a week we've got allocated for project work for for our members so they they buy hours through our ecosystem and they get a reduced rate to do that and so in terms of like learning what's happening in the ecosystem we're getting more exposure to what's happening in channels that way but yeah we're we own it all in-house uh and and we'll likely just keep it that way because i firmly believe that if we're going to be teaching this stuff, we need to be practitioners as well. So it's this healthy balance of like tactical and strategic that that you need to be kind of code switching between. And uh, and it's, you know, it's why, you know, growth use, it, it's a very challenging place to work from that perspective, because you have to be that owner operator, but you have to be able to come up a level and, and be able to build a program, right? Like that's mm-hmm. kind of a requirement still at this point. So we look for folks who can come in and, and just come in with a lot of ownership, but we're, we're handling all that in-house right now. What would you say, Craig, that drives and motivates you today? I think the growth potential of this company is, uh, it, it's there. I mean, I think we're still super early stage, but it is a culmination of all the things that I've worked on in my whole career. And I'm super passionate about helping startups grow. I mean, this is like what I've been doing for, for 20 plus years. I have an absolutely incredible team. And, you know, my team is, is fluid and flexible and, and, you know, a lot, we're all learning on the job as we go, but we've, we've just, just built like an incredible culture and an incredible team, even though we're super early stage. Uh, I think that the industry is, uh, you know, the ed tech industry is exploding right now. And if you, if you think about our core differentiator as a company versus our proxy competitors, we focus on the startup. So we want to help the startup and we're, we want to help the individual within the startup, but mostly we want to help build that playbook of growth for the startup itself. So if you're a founder or a CEO or you're a marketer within the startup, what we're building is relevant to all of you. We might recommend different programs based on kind of what your role is, but we want to build the stuff that's going to help your startup grow. And that's been my passion for a, a very, very long time. And I get to do that every day with this company. So I'm like absolutely thrilled and, and humbled and honored to be uh, in the role that I am to, to kind of lead the charge with this. I love that. What would you say are some daily habits or skills that have helped you, whether personally or business? Finding the times of the day when, when you're most productive and focusing on putting in the work hours then, and not trying to like, trying to, um, cut down on some of the anxiety that you feel if you're just kind of sitting at your desk and, and you don't feel like you're being productive. I've really found that if I just take more frequent breaks or go for a walk, hang out with my kids, you know, it's the summertime, do some traveling, whatever that might be. It's taken me a very long time, but I can finally now say like, I don't have to be sitting there all day mm-hmm. and worried about, am I getting enough stuff done? It's like, if, if I can plan the times where I know I'm gonna be most productive, then I just exploit that time. And I'm like 10 times more productive than if I'm kind of sitting there in my head's half in it or or I just can't quite get in the flow. So giving yourself permission to like walk away for a little while and to just be um, patient with yourself, I think has been uh, big for me. The other thing, and, and look, you may need to work, you know, to be successful in your role, you may need to work 30 hours a week. You might need to pull a 70 hour week, right? And, and I'll go in between those when I'm building a program I mean, I'm just, I'm all in it. I'm immersed in it. And I might 
pull an 80 or 90 hour a week or a couple weeks like that where I'm just grinding it out. And then I'll pull back for a little while because we can't all work and be productive at that side. The other thing that I think from a team perspective that's been really, really key, and I've done this now at four or five companies, is a Monday morning, all hands. It's, that is one time where we all get together. It's probably the only meeting where it's on, on, on the calendar for everybody. And we reflect on what happened last week. How are our metrics looking? What are we nervous about? What are we excited about? What are our wins and losses? What's our revenue? How many customers did we get? Did we churn anybody? What was the feedback from the churn customers? Everybody knows this. Everybody knows our numbers in and out. They know exactly what we need to hit this month. We've got very aggressive goals. We're flexible, but we've got very we've got very aggressive goals that we set. And everybody knows what they're working towards. And that has been a forcing function for us that says, you know, we know where we're all going. We know where we need to get. We know where we've been. Now you go figure out how to do it. Right? And, and we'll be here to support you along the way. So um, those are just a couple lessons that I've learned. It's not about just having a bunch of meetings on the books. It's really about just being hyper-organized around the metrics that matter and regularly reporting on that and just being very, very vigilant about making sure that you're tracking. I love that you track everything. That's great. We yeah. don't track everything. We track what we think matters. Okay. So we track, there's four or five metrics that really matter to us. Monthly recurring revenue, total revenue, new users, um, month one churn. How many users came in this month and churn next month? We keep a really close eye on that. Um, month three, month six churn. We wanna see what our retention rate looks like sure. because that gives us a sense of how we're doing. Are we getting better over time? Is that three month churn going down every month? That's what we want um, and it is. So that's, that's good, right? So those are metrics that um, may take you a little while to figure out, but those are the ones that really matter to us. Yes, we look at leads. Uh, but there's a lot of vanity metrics that, that founders look at that just don't really matter. And they, they're very distracting, right? We want to understand how many leads do we need to get a sale? And as long as we're in that threshold, then we're good. We can model everything out. So we don't track everything. We just track the stuff that we think is most important to us. And that would be my guidance to anybody out there who's trying to figure out what the heck do I track? It's like pick three metrics that you think most impact your business and measure those and understand what it's going to take to impact those metrics. That's why we build growth models and financial models and stuff like that in our programs. What would you say is your biggest challenge with your role at, at GrowFu today? Probably understanding the balance of where I spend my time. And so again, with this autonomy and, and fluidity and having a small team, should I be digging more into the cold outreach? Should I be spending my days on partnership strategy? Should I just be building programs? Should I spend most of my time talking to customers? And I do a little bit of all of those things. And I think I don't know what the next iteration of that's going to look like. And that makes me both excited and a little nervous, right? I'm figuring it out as I go as well. This is a very different company than any other company I've, I've been in or have run. It's different dynamics. Uh, it's a different type of team. It's a different type of product and a different competitive landscape. And so those things also become uh, worries of mine, but they also make it challenging and, and keep me motivated. I love that. Coming to an end here, Craig, when you're not busy with the company, what do you like to do in your free time for fun? I like to hang out with my wife and kids. We love to travel. Um, we're getting into mountain biking. Uh, we try to go ice skating once in a while. We um, try to travel as much as we can. I mean, that's been tough with COVID. Um, just do woodworking projects and um, try to play games and, uh, you know, try to catch a movie here and there. So, you know, I, I tend to try to optimize as much as I can for, for spending as much time with my family as I can. And, uh, you know, we've got a little music set up in the house. I play drums, my kids play, my wife's playing. So, um, you know, at some point we'll get the family band going and um, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm into. So, but, uh, you know, I, I love good coffee. So like, we, you know, we'll hit Old Town and um, hit Misha's or other coffee shops whenever we can and, and just kind of like, just hang out. Yeah. How many kids do you have? I got two. How old are they? 11 and nine. Okay. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. They yeah, keep us it, on our toes. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you have the drums and then the other one has different instruments? Yeah. So my wife plays piano. My son plays piano and violin. My daughter plays piano and flute. 
And I think she might play a viola or something this year because she gets it with her school. So we're, uh, you know, a lot of those were kind of still learning, um, but we're we're slowly getting there. So yeah. it's it's fun. There might yeah. be a guitar in the future. We'll see. You really do have the band, the, the band there. It, it reminds me last year with COVID, my my oldest, who's ten, started with uh, music with a trumpet. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, but you know, when you're working from home and then you have the trumpet playing in the background, that's <laughs> learning. Yeah, but, yeah, that's loud. But it, it it was fun. It was interesting. I think there might be a trumpet in our future as well. I think uh, I, I actually kind of want to learn the trumpet. Yeah, it's, it's nice. I, I asked him, I like, do you want to try a different instrument? You know, he's like, he wants to stick with the trumpet. So who knows where it leads? We'll see. Hey, kid led music <laughs> is good. You know, I, um, I was a very small kid. And so I wanted to play bass, but the bass was just too darn big. Like, my parents were like, no, nah, we're not, we're not doing the bass. So I was like, oh man. So then yeah, I, I kind of got him back in high school. I started picking up the drums and uh you know that was good but i think kid-led instruments is good you know let them play what they want to play and and they'll find their way with it yeah craig last question so what does the future look for you and growth you what does the next couple of years look like i think we're going to scale this thing up i mean more programs uh, we've got eight now we'll probably be at 15 programs by the end of the year that can really service the needs of of pretty much any stage company and founder is coming in uh, next year, 2022 is going to be very much focused on kind of scaling out the number of programs. We want to have the most comprehensive set of growth training related programs uh, for startups to help their startups grow in the industry. Uh, we want to build a massive community and uh, just build a lot of that peer to peer support. You know, you see it with the live cohorts that we run. There's a lot of peer to peer interaction that's happening. People looking for founders, co-founders, teammates, helping promote one another's um, products and projects, buying some of the services and, and products that, that each other have. It's going to be a lot more of that. We're going to continue to grow the team. Uh, we actually got to open, uh, we've got a job opening right now for a head of growth to run the agency side of our business. Uh, we're likely going to build a product to support a lot of the stuff that we're currently doing in spreadsheets. So that'll come in 2022. So hire a product manager, so just a lot of movement and uh, and a lot of getting to scale and and hopefully we'll um we'll kind of get this thing into the stratosphere. That's awesome. That's the plan. Where can people find out more about you or if they want to join Growth U? Yeah, just go to growthuniversity.io and um, you can find out what we're doing there. We actually have a, um, a super easy way to get started. We've got a free Growth 101 program that a couple thousand people have gone through. Great feedback on that. Entirely free. For $1, you can try out any of our programs for a week. Uh, and then we've got um, uh, different, we've got a monthly and an annual model as well. If you wanna find me, I'm just Craig at Growth University IO. Look for me on LinkedIn, Craig Zingerline. I'm the only Craig Zingerline and I'm at Craig Zingerline on Twitter. And uh, I do a lot of mentorship. So if you've got any like thorny growth questions or anything else, just reach out. Happy to um, answer any questions you've got. And if, if I can't answer them, I'll point you to a teammate who, uh, is a lot better at a lot of the stuff than I am. And uh, one of them could probably help you. That's great. Craig, thank you so much for coming today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Otto. Have a great day. I really appreciate the invite. You too. Take care. All right. Peace. If you haven't done so already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review and comment and let me know what you think. Thank you. And I'll see you all very soon on the next episode.